All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of In the Clinch. As always, I'm John Cox, your co-host here, Theo, and today we have a very special guest, one of the uh, best voices in all of sports, and one of the best mustaches in all of sports as well, uh, UFC play-by-play commentator John Anik. John, thank you for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Fellas, it's my pleasure. Good to be with you. Good. Um, first off, before we get into any of this MMA stuff, you're a local guy, Boston guy. What do you think of Mac Jones and these Patriots? So yesterday, I wasn't able to see a snap. Uh, obviously, yesterday, it wasn't a good effort against the New Orleans Saints because I was traveling back from UFC 266. But, yeah. you know, it's certainly a better box score than some of the other rookie quarterbacks that are out there, you know, and obviously the pick six, the Jonu Smith interception, one of the few highlights I did see was not on him. Right. I'm excited. I'm excited, but with caution, right? Like, he's less mobile than Tom Brady. Let's be clear about that. He's slower than Tom right now. So if he wants to lean into the strength and conditioning and the pliability and certain things that have helped Tom navigate that pocket, I think he can be elite because he has the tools that you like, the accuracy, the leadership, um, the brain, the work ethic. Um, But his strength and conditioning and his willingness to make himself more fleet of foot uh, is going to have to be prioritized or I don't think that he's going to be, you know, as good as he can be. Sweet. Do you think they make the playoffs at all? I'm curious. You know, again, I had expectations that they were going to beat the Saints as three-point home favorites, and obviously I didn't see what, you know, they did or didn't do defensively. But um, I think it's going to be tough if you're one and three, you know. So, uh, but I do think that roster-wise, you know, the 45 that they dress on game day, you know, I think it's a playoff team on paper. So, we'll see. I think it is, too. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. Um, So, it was international fight week. I'm just curious what your experience was like. I know it's hectic usually down there in Las Vegas and everything, especially with what's going on with COVID and stuff like that. Guys coming from all different countries all around the world. Um, was it more ramped up than it usually is for international fight week as far as COVID protocols and all that stuff goes? Not necessarily, man. You know, it felt pretty loose if I'm being totally honest. Uh, it was a whirlwind, you know, I mean, even talking to you guys, I feel like I'm a little bit browned out right now. And, I'm just <laughs> not, um, and I hope that doesn't register as a complaint, but international fight week for, a lot of us is just crazy. You know, it's just one event to the next, you know, morning right. way into hosting UFC live to just all sorts of different obligations. You know, I can tell you guys, um, I was going to talk about this on our podcast today, but I had a crew from UFC.com that was tracking me this weekend, you know, in my room, filming me doing yeah. my voiceovers and things like that. So we have some behind the scenes content um, coming up later this week. So it was just crazy hall of fame had a celebration of life for, for my dear friend and, and our former makeup mm-hmm. artist, Susie Freetown, you know, so yeah. um, it was just an emotional, crazy week. Um, but I got to tell you, man, one of the more memorable pay-per-views I've ever called. And, yeah. uh, you know, it didn't drag for a minute. So that no. certainly helped me at the end of a long week. Yeah, it's a fantastic fight card. Yeah, definitely a crazy fight week. You're right about that. And leading up to the event, we also found out that Joe Rogan wasn't going to be working as part of the commentary team for that event. When Joe's not in attendance for those big pay-per-view fights, does it really change the dynamic at all of the broadcast team? Uh, like, what kind of adjustments do you have to make in order to compensate, compensate for when Joe's not there? Well, I think you make adjustments on any given night, right? Sometimes during a given fight, you might get less or more from a broadcast partner. You know, sometimes maybe I'll notice an analyst, the energy wanes a little bit, so I got to pick them up at certain points, and then maybe they ramp it up again later in the night. Um 
it's a very special dynamic, obviously, when Joe is there and there's nobody that can necessarily do what Joe does. And then I think reciprocally, there are other guys that bring different skill sets to the table. But um, it's always more special uh, when he is there. And uh, it's amazing for me to sort of see people read way too much into his absence. You know, this is a COVID-19 climate in which dates can get shifted around. And, you know, when Joe sells out an arena for a comedy show or commits to a hunting trip that a lot of people take very seriously you know it's sometimes right. hard to get out of those commitments you know um but rest assured you know he's going to be doing these domestic pay-per-views i've said to a lot of people he'll probably last longer than i do so um i'm excited <laughs> for the chance to hopefully work with him for for decades to come absolutely um so it's just sticking on the um the topic of the commentary team there's a lot of you guys that they kind of shuffling through brennan fitzgerald uh dc paul felder yourself joe uh, I'm just curious, how do you guys make that work so well? Because it almost seems like you're never fumbling over each other's words. You have the insight, obviously, of Daniel Cormier and Paul Felder, who are former fighters. They know what they're talking about. They have their own special, unique um, sets in there. Uh, how do you guys make it go so fluidly? And um, you yourself, maybe having some MMA experience, but not quite a fighter, um, how do you talk about the fights as well as you do with these guys who have obviously been to the upper echelon and the top tier of fighting DC being the champion, Paul Felder being, I believe sixth ranked at his highest. These are legitimate fighters who know what they're talking about. How do you mingle in there without feeling like you're not knowing what you're talking about? Well, no, I appreciate the kind words on the broadcast. You know, we had someone reach out to us and say, I can't believe I'm saying this, you know, from the Southwestern part of the United States, but you guys have me watching you guys and not college football just for the commentary. <laughs> I don't even like the fights, you know? Right. So that's about, that's the ultimate compliment obviously yeah, right. for us. But in terms of that navigation, um, I'm just trying to be as listenable, listenable as possible over eight hours. That's the yeah. truth, right? Like my background is in sports radio and we were working on 1510 The Zone, the sporting news radio affiliate in Boston. And you go down the dial WEI where I always wanted to work and they interrupted each other all afternoon. And we yeah. doing that, you know, so for me, that's a charge and a challenge that I take very seriously. And in a three man booth, when Joe Rogan stops talking, you know, DC is there. So maybe I'll give right. it a beat, give it a chance for the former two time, you know, uh, or two division UFC champion to actually get in there instead of, um, you know, a play by play guy from Boston who, uh, you know, wanted to be in the NBA. So <laughs> I try to stay in my lane as best I can. You know, obviously when the fight hits the ground, um, you're not going to hear a lot from me and Dana White's not itching to hear more from me in those situations. Right. Um, but I, this is not about ego for me. It's not about fame, you know? Um, it's really not. At the end of the day, it's about having a job that you don't dislike. And thankfully, I love mine very much. And, um, and I also think we're not doing radio. So in television, less is more. When in doubt, lay out. And, um, you know, that's kind of the way I've sort of approached it. And, um, you know, just trying to get better every show, honestly. Yeah. Um, real quick, before we get into the main events, um, all the top three things, I just want to talk real quick. How about your boy Ray Longo's guy, Marab, getting it done? One of the best comebacks we've seen in the division for sure, but almost in UFC history. I mean, that fight was incredible from start to finish, and I hammered a money fight, so I was happy about the comeback. There's so much good for you. There's so much to unpack <laughs> on this. I honestly don't even know where to begin with it. Um, you know, I'll just say, I think Keith Peterson's refereeing style has evolved since yeah. he made a mistake in that Dominic Cruz fight, because not yeah. only did he give Marab a chance to recover, but, you know, I thought there were instances in which he should have stopped that fight and uh, let Marlon kind of live to fight another day. And right. that really um, flies in the face of him not giving Dominic Cruz much time in the championship situation. So that's one takeaway. Um, I don't know what 
is in the water in Georgia. Uh, and maybe it isn't just the Georgians. Marab is just a really unique individual. You know, anyone yeah. who's listened to the Anakin Florent podcast knows that if he gets cut in training, he like goes in the back and glues it together himself. Um, there's not really a way to fatigue the man. And you hear a lot of right. people say, you know, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And a fighter's greatest fear is not bleeding or getting torched in the octagon. It's getting tired in the octagon. Yeah. And as yet, these trainers haven't really figured out a way to physically fatigue this man. And I don't have to tell you guys, as educated as you are, how empowering that is, you know, when you're right. fighting another man. So I think Marab draws a lot of faith in that. You know, what Ray will probably say on the podcast today is that when he was watching film on Marlon, you know, he sort of came to the realization, look, my athlete is not Corey Sandhagen. You know, he's not going to be able to just evade all of this with footwork. Um, mm-hmm. You're probably going to have to walk through some shit and maybe get right. a concussion. And Marab sort of looked at him as, and was like, I'll die in there, coach. <laughs> and uh, as you saw, he's willing to die in there. And uh, what's nice now is that Marab's going to be in the top six in the world and he's going to be impossible to deny. So uh, what a fight. Uh, I can't wait to celebrate with Greg today. Fantastic. And we'd be remiss, John, if we didn't bring up the Nick Diaz show that was this past weekend. Um, you know, he was a huge talking fight. And he was a huge talking point the whole week. But there was no story that was bigger than his decision to change the fight to 185 instead of 170. Did that change to middleweight, change how you thought the fight would go at all? Knowing what I know now, and I can't really get into the details as to some of the stuff that Nick was dealing with, I guess I just wish that he had tried to make it 85 a little bit before fight week, you know, Um, because obviously I think if you looked at him, you know, he didn't look like a guy who could make welterweight, you know, seemingly he was in better shape six or eight weeks ago. And there were some things that he needed to navigate. Um, He's just an absolute legend. You know, when I was working at ESPN, 2005, six, seven, and I was trying to get people into mixed martial arts because none of my friends were watching it. Certainly, um, you know, I was telling them to watch Nick Diaz. So for me to get the chance to to watch him compete live and to call one of his fights was certainly a treat. Um, but this wasn't your prototypical Nick Diaz fight in certain respects. I mean, yeah, it was punches and bunches. Yes, it was his his great chin and uh, you know his ability to just land and throw at a historic rate, but. As I said on the post-fight show, you know, there was no scowl. There was no sort of uh, meanness or particular focus in his eyes. Um, So I do think when we see Nick back in six months, ideally he'll be better than he was this night, even though he got some things done in the fight. Um, But uh, I don't know. I think the performance, while it had its moments, um, you know, he wasn't prime. He wasn't primal, which uh, I'm surprised to say. But uh, sports better with him in it. You know, yeah, so hopefully sure. he'll be back in six months. And I think he will. Like, I think he wants to fight. That's interesting. And there was a, there was a bunch of stuff in the, in the week. You know, there was that interview with Brett where people uh, kind of raised concern because he said he didn't really want to fight. Then there was also that shadow boxing deal, the UFC did for promotion where people thought he looked really slow and withered. Did any of that, did any of that make you feel a little bit concerned about how this fight might go at all? No, I mean, I think there were a lot of rumblings as to, things that were going on. You know, I think the other thing too, was that Robbie Lawler, even though recent results haven't been great, he's in shape. He's training his ass off, you know, and right. I can yep. sit here and tell you young man at 43 for me, like I work out six days a week and at 43, man, it doesn't even matter. You know, it's like, I'm still, <laughs> fat, you know, um, so I just feel like Robbie is working really hard and it's a favorable matchup for Robbie in a lot of respects. And, um, you know, I think that was part of the problem, just that he fought a a man who was better tonight. I think Nick knew he was going to be fighting a really in shape Robbie Lawler, but yeah, I thought Nick looked a little bit slow and I think he'll look faster in six months. I really do. 
you know? Um, but uh, I didn't read too much into it during fight week because you just don't want to do that too much. You're like I'm contractually prevented from betting on the UFC. Right. And all we mm -hmm. hear all these things, right? Like right. I'll tell right. you guys, we sort of intimated a little bit about this, but like Valentina Shevchenko, we heard going into the Andrade fight that she was like sick as a dog, you know, she looked really? ill really? in our fighter meeting, you know, oh, going wow. into the Andrade fight. Um, hmm. Certainly didn't fucking matter on fight. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. She's unbelievable. And we'll get to her very shortly. Um, so obviously Nick Diaz is a big return. They're rematched 17 years into making his first fight in six years. Um, a fan favorite, obviously. It seemed like the T-Mobile arena just lit up the way it does for a Connor fight, for anything like that. Um, I know you commented on the uh, certain aroma in the um, stadium as yeah. soon as the Diaz brothers yeah. walked out. What was the atmosphere like in there? And uh, what did it feel like just around the cage? Well, I'm just trying to paint a picture at the end of the day, right? And, and anyone who hasn't been to Nevada in the last three or four years, um, understand this marijuana climate, okay? <laughs> Everywhere you go in Vegas yeah. now, you smell weed. In the hallway at your hotel, uh, in the mm -hmm. lobby at your hotel, in the casinos, on the streets, it is omnipresent. So it didn't dawn on me until, you know, the fight started. It seemed like everybody was waiting to smoke until <laughs> Nick walked out, you know? I didn't smell it all night. And then it literally took over the arena. So I'm really trying to paint a picture at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, it's just special, man. It's just, you know, I don't know how you quantify like the top five biggest superstars in the UFC right now and what metrics you would use to determine that. Um, but these Diaz brothers resonate right. on a near Connor level. I mean, right. it's just that may compete um and i think if you're looking at the top five superstars right now you know it's obviously connor is number one and there's a gap between him and nate diaz who's probably two and if if masvidal's three you know nick diaz is probably four so yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. and it, it just shows to show how, how popular they are that he can come back after so long off not a ton of fight promotion too i mean they had the fight booked and announce a few months out but still just to come back out of nowhere and have that huge pop and the support and the fans right away the chance of diaz at the beginning of the fight it's it's, it's like um just one of those fighters that's like it's happy to, i'm glad i got to see him fight at least one more time if not if he doesn't keep going but like you said i think he might keep fighting as well yeah and i can just relate to him on a lot of levels you know whether it comes to uh social anxiety or marijuana or wanting to just uh i can't necessarily say what i want to say all the time like he does right, right. um but i think in many respects even though he grew up in a more hardened environment than i did um you know i can relate to him in a lot of aspects of life and um mm -hmm. again he was just an athlete that resonated me with me in this sport early on and um you know i really do hope that uh you know, it's not just the financials that he really wants to come back and get back into an active competition schedule. Right. Right. And we mentioned before that Valentina Shevchenko, she got a finish over Lauren Murphy in the fourth round. You know, we've known for a while that she's the best to ever do a women's flyweight. But where does she even go from here? Like what other challenges can Valentina seek out? I mean, I wish you guys could pull up the top five, honestly, right now, but I guess it's probably all women that she has beaten, right? In terms right. of the flyweight division, this gets tricky. Thankfully, Lauren Murphy emerged and won five consecutive fights and made herself impossible to deny. I thought Joanne Calder would beat Lauren Murphy in Murphy's previous fight, right? So I think JoJo Calderwood is certainly a viable option and would be a fresh option. Um, you know, I would like to see uh, uh, an improved Caitlin Chukagian potentially, you know, um, I'm a big fan of hers and I do think she's a much better fighter now having gone through that Shevchenko experience. 
I don't know how many cuts down to 135 pounds Amanda Nunes has yeah. in her career left. Yeah. I really yeah. don't. And I think therein lies the rub because I do think there's going to be a time for the UFC to strike with that trilogy fight. And I think there are going to be two questions, you know, where is Amanda relative to the contenders in her division? Um, because I think most of us expect Valentina will still be the flyweight champion without much of a challenge, you know, and then uh, what is Amanda's appetite to give Valentina that fight, right? Can the UFC, um, <coughs> depending on how much they'd make on that fight, make it worth Amanda's while um, to give Valentina a trilogy fight when she's up to nil because Amanda's putting her status as all time great, the GOAT on the line when she fights Valentina. She's, I guess you could say when she fights Juliana Pena, she's doing that too, but you know what I mean. Um, so I don't know, man. You know, I just think it's uh, largely, as I said on the post fight show, dominant champions, whether it's the New England Patriots or George St. Pierre, are good for sport. Right. This, this championship fight, I don't think was good for sport. So. Yeah. It's it's hard to get into because it's it just seems like there is no answer for Valentina Shevchenko or respectively Amanda Nunes. It's these two, and we've seen them fight twice now. Um, I believe it was the second one was a lot closer than the first one. You can debate that it may be one one, um, but with her up two nothing, Amanda Nunes, um, it is tough to try to remake that for a third time. And I'm, but I feel like that's the only championship women's fight that's going to sell right now is those two. Well, and you wonder if Amanda would like to have more finality on the rivalry because right. that second fight between Shevchenko and Nunes, I would have to go back and watch it right now. Um, but it seemed like people were split and it did seem like a lot of the media thought Valentina Shevchenko beat her. And could right. you imagine how much the narrative has changed? I mean, right. it's crazy. Like Shevchenko fought Amanda in two of her first five UFC appearances when the flyweight division didn't exist, you know, and then she moves up to flyweight and she has all but killed a woman. You know what I mean? Right. So, right. Um, and the other thing, too, with respect to sort of the training camps of these fellow flyweights, you know, it's like it's going to take such a, a physical commitment, right, to get yourself in the shape of your life like you've never been before to even have any sort of chance against Valentina. And then I think you're going to have to do something crazy and really throw caution to the wind and take some risks. And with respect to Lauren Murphy, she wasn't willing to do that. And Lauren and Joe Murphy are two of my most favorite people in the sport, but we got to call it like it is, you know, and I will tell you like Juliana Pena and Valentina, the way she beat her in a main event that quickly was very surprising to me. Mm -hmm. Juliana Pena is a dog and has that dog in her. And I can assure you that she is going to go for it when she gets her title shot. Yeah. So, Absolutely. you know, Amanda, uh, and it's somewhat of an advantage for Amanda and speaks to even greater how special what Valentina is doing. Cause Amanda, like um, Amanda, no, like Amanda's not minus 1500, right. Against Juliana Pena. Like Amanda knows, like if she don't put in a great training camp, like you're not just going to walk in there and beat Juliana Pena. Right. Uh, we do want to get to this. We know we only got a couple more minutes with you um, for sure. Saturday's main event, one of the best championship fights we've seen in a very long time, if ever. Um, Volkanovski versus Brian Ortega defeats him with the um, unanimous decision. Brian Ortega, I, I want to know how the hell Volkanovski got out of one, that guillotine, and then two, that triangle choke. Because I also hedged my bet on Brian Ortega by submission, so I was a little upset about that, but it is what yeah. it is. Um, one, of, I mean, that was one of the tightest guillotines I think I've seen in a very long time. Even Volkanovski said it. They said, I think the quote was, holy fuck, this is, I'm about to lose the belt deep or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, what was it like to call that fight, the back and forth, that third round was phenomenal. Well, obviously my experience tells me it was pretty damn tight as well, even though right. frankly, I've never been in one. And, uh, 
until my bosses tell me I got to go do <laughs> practice on Tuesday. I'm not going to do it. But um, no, I mean, I think it speaks to two things. It speaks to heart and repetition. And even though submission offense isn't what it used to be in the UFC, and even though Alexander Volkanovsky, um, you know, doesn't have you know, submission offensively at the forefront of his mind. His submission defense is outstanding and they spend a ton of time in these bad positions and getting out of these bad positions. And when you parlay that with his championship heart and a mentality that you know is that of a guy who's not going to tap, you know, I'm not all that surprised, you know, but what a confidence booster for Volkanovsky moving forward, you know, fighting the preeminent jujitsu guy in the sport, you know, being in triangles and guillotines and all of these things and being able to get out Volkanovsky. He's incredible. You know, he was already a top five pound for pound guy, but 20 straight wins, you know, I just hope we can continue to celebrate him because my, my pay-per-view open essentially was like, this guy deserves better. And when Khabib Nurmagomedov had a winning streak like this, um, he was the talk of the town. So hopefully Volkanovsky is, yep. you know, I could go on and on about Ortega's toughness and everything else coming back and winning the fifth round. Um, but Volkanovsky was dominant for a lot of this fight. And what he did after those chokes at the end of round three yeah. is the stuff of fucking legend, you know, yeah. um, absolutely incredible, you know, you could have even stopped that fight at the end of round three, honestly. You know, those Ortega visuals, I'm telling you, if that was a non-title yep. fight, that fight probably gets stopped. Yep. Right. That's actually interesting. I was going to ask you if it should have been stopped or not, because a lot of people online saw that Brian was just laying there. And yeah. then the physician thing was, yeah. um, it was, it was a little confusing. Like, the questions didn't really make sense. So, yeah, that's interesting. But we, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this piece of news that came out during the week. Uh, John Jones was arrested last week on a misdemeanor domestic violence charge. Um, you know, when Jones was uh, charged on four offenses last April, you told MMAfighting.com that you thought that he, quote, bottomed out. Given the history of Jones and your own personal interactions with him, you know, what do you make of that whole situation? Oh, man, it's really tough, Theo, you know, um, and I guess he hadn't bottomed out in a lot of respects. Um, but I love this guy. Right. Um, like when he talks to you as he did me for 45 minutes backstage at the hall of fame. Like he's not looking at his phone. He's looking in the, you in the eye. He's asking me about the, the commentary job. He's asking me about my kids. He's there. He's present. Like I really have an appreciation for him one-on-one and how much he does appreciate his teammates and his family. They were so excited to see him go into the hall of fame. Um, but obviously he decided to turn it up thereafter. And, um, you know, whatever he's putting into his body is sort of creating this guy that can't control himself in these situations. And uh, it's just really, really sad. And domestic sort of, it seems to um, intimate that, you know, there was some contact with somebody in his family. So it's just really sad. Um, And I know he was behaving himself in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And um, I don't know, it's really sad. Like, um, right you're still going to hear me come to his defense. You know, I know when you have a headline that I, you know, I, I, I think I also said, you know, it is embarrassing for his daughters, you know, and I, I do think that's right. the hardest navigation. Um, as a guy with daughters, I'm just getting emotional, but because it's for me, it's like, I'm in the public eye and it stands to reason if I'm doing your podcast in five years, by that time I've, I've done something fucking stupid and my name's <laughs> up in lights and my daughters are having to, you know, I'm having to deal with that, you know? So I just, you know, I just think, what, what do you say to your daughters now? You know, um, but I just hope that uh, I hope it's not as bad as we think it is. And, um, you know, I just hope that he can get the right help um, to just, uh, you know, because the thing is, it's asking a lot of his support system, right, to to 
you know, be with him every step of the way on these nights and make sure he doesn't, you know, get himself in hot water. You know, the onus has got to be on him. Sweet. Well said, John. Um, yeah, so I know we're crunched for time here. We're going to ask you two quick last questions here. So we have UFC 267, UFC 268 coming up back-to-back weekends. Um, first off, which fight on that two, on those two cards intrigues you the most? And I know as recently as last year you were training, and um, I'm just curious, can all these bantamweights still get it? When's that first fight coming? All right, well, let me ask you guys real quick on 267 and 268. Is it a cop-out if I say Covington-Usman? Because no, no, not at all. Definitely not. That's the line. I mean, Tim, me. I mean, why are they doing this fight? Right. Like, I mean, Leon Edwards has to know in his heart of hearts, right. That what happened at UFC 245, like Dana White, it's not promotional hype. That was one of the greatest championship fights ever. Yeah, absolutely. Paul Covington hit Kamara Usman with some of the biggest shots that I have ever seen. And Kamara just fucking ate them, you know, mm-hmm. It's one of the greatest fights of all time. Colby Covington is one of the best pound for pound fighters I have ever seen. His performance against Robbie Lawler, one of the greatest singular performances in UFC history. Um, And then came out and beat Tyron Woodley. Like he deserves this opportunity. Um, And I think the Dana White, Kamar Usman relationship right now is so strong. And that's why they were able to make this fight. And I'm just really excited for that rematch. I mean, there's so many fights. I'm excited for Glover to get his opportunity on and on it goes, but Dude, Covington Usman too, with respect. I love you, Leon Edwards, but you had to make that rematch. I yep. cannot wait yep. to call it. And as far as um, you know, my fighting future is concerned, there are a lot of amateur athletes out there that are training really hard. So I ain't trying to take their shine. You know, this was more more me about, I think, kind of wanting to compete against my twin brother in a controlled setting <laughs> with a controlled rule set. Yep. I think the big variable for me is like certainly I'm in shape right now. Like I think I'm probably within four to six months of of making 136 pounds if I had to. But again, it's like, I might sound like a real softy here, but I, you know, I have been hospitalized with three concussions in my life. So before I was ever to do anything where I took a shot to the head, I would have to get my brain scanned. Um, So I thought with my brother, we could do sort of like, you know, neck and down body shots, maybe with a little grappling involved, um, but no leg locks or something. Um, I don't know. We'll see what happens. You know, I do think there are a lot of people out there who, uh, who do want to fight me. And um, yeah, <laughs> I would like to compete at some point. Um, but I think 2023 is more realistic than next year, but okay. you never know if the right offer comes in and it's the right charity. Um, we'd probably get a brain scan and take the bait. Sweet. So there's our headline. Um, <laughs> as we wrap up here, John, honestly, I can't thank you enough for doing this. This is awesome for me. Definitely a bucket list item. Um, Super humble guy. Uh, we can't wait to see you back in Boston, hopefully soon. Uh, you got to tell Dana to bring some goddamn fights back here, man. This is where it all started. So I, I, know. Uh, I thought we would have been there by now, but as the state continues to open up, are you guys both New England guys or no? Yep. Yep, sir. Uh, I thought we might cancel after the Red Sox got swept by the Yankees. Although I, I don't even know that it really <laughs> matters all that much, candidly. You know, you just have to see how this week plays out. Um, right. But I do think in a one-game setting, I like the fighting Alex Cora's to get it done. So <laughs> Right. Um, so thank you again, honestly. Uh, this has been the best. This is awesome. And uh, hopefully next time you're in Boston, we can buy you a beer or something. Yeah, let's do it. And we'll do the podcast again. And hopefully I don't uh, get arrested before. Uh, that <laughs> awesome. Thanks, John. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks a lot, John. Thank I appreciate you guys. a lot. Have thank a good you, day. Man. You too. Appreciate you guys.